All right. You guys doing good tonight? Are you guys ready to uh, take the speed level down to about, you know, something palatable, like about a five instead of the 11 that we've been traveling at the last couple months? Uh, we are going to, actually, before I get into the message, I just want to throw out one uh, quick word about our Israel trip. I had mentioned a while ago that as a church, we were planning to do a, a trip to Israel in, uh, in the late fall of next year, 2019. Uh, we had our information meeting, had tons of people come to the information meeting, more than enough interest to go ahead and move forward, but we are running into our deadline time for decisions. Okay. As of this time, there's a handful of people who have committed, but we need another handful of people to commit. We need more people to commit to this before we can write a check, because after the first of the year, that's when we start putting down some pretty good-sized deposits and things. So if you're sitting on the fence trying to decide, should I go? Do I want to go? Do I want more information? See Gabe or I before you leave church tonight, and we'll get you a packet. We'll get you all the information that you want to know. Um, but it's just been incredible. As we went through the Sermon on the Mount series, uh, as we went through Acts, all these places that are talked about in there are places that we will visit on the Israel trip. It's an amazing trip. If you're ever gone, you know, um, but there's so much to it. So anyway, if, if you feel a tug from the Holy Spirit on your heart about that trip, be sure and see us tonight. We need to start making some decisions on whether we're going to be able to move forward into the next phase of that. So just let us know. All right, that's it for that. Uh, let's get into the message. We're going to start a series, a short series, just a three-week series on messianic prophecy. And what that is, as we go into the Christmas season, everybody's eyes worldwide really turns to Jesus. Whether you're a believer or not, most people understand why we're thinking about Jesus this time of year. Even if you don't believe in him, you're like, okay, it's about Jesus is the reason for the season, right? We've all heard that and the Christmas music in the stores. It's a wonderful time, and if it could just be that way all year. But it's not. But this month, everybody specifically starts thinking about that. And so I wanted to take the next few weeks leading up to Christmas itself to talk about some of the biblical prophecy that foretells of a coming Messiah. <coughs> And, and more specifically, why that's important to us, okay? So I have a question. Now, we've, we've got a little bit more time. We're going to do a couple more different things. It's going to be a little bit more interactive. So I need you guys to play along with me, or this is not going to work. So first of all, I want to ask, why do we celebrate Christmas? Birth of our Lord. Birth of Christ. What else? Is there anything else? Because it's, it's fun. That's why, that's why even non-believers celebrate Christmas, because it's fun, right? The lights, everything. What else? Anybody else have another reason? Family. Family. What was that? Tradition. 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 That's one where we just do it because we do it, right? Do I see a hand over here? Brings people together. Hmm? Brings people together. Brings people together. People you haven't talked to in years, now all of a sudden you're writing them a Christmas card. And you have to think about something nice and personal to say when you're like, I don't even, all I have is an address. I don't even remember their face anymore, right? But you're writing a Christmas card, right? So it is important for all those reasons, but there's so much more to it. It's not just 
that it's fun and that we're celebrating the birth of Christ. We're celebrating the fact that we need a Savior. We have always needed a Savior. Mankind from the very beginning has needed a Savior. And God's plan has always been to provide us with that Savior. And we celebrate Christmas because that's the arrival of our Savior. That's the arrival and the fulfillment of thousands of years worth of Old Testament prophecy about a coming Messiah was fulfilled on that day when Jesus Christ was born. Okay, and then all throughout his life, obviously, it continued to be fulfilled. And we're going to talk about that. But that's another reason. We celebrate God's faithfulness on that day because from the beginning of time, God has been promising us a Messiah, a Savior. And on that day, he fulfilled that promise to us. That's a reason to rejoice. And there's so much more. But make no mistake, a lot of people think when they think about Jesus and they think about the need of a Savior, they think of Jesus as kind of a plan B. And I've heard it taught this way. Maybe you have too, where God had this plan to walk with his people in the Garden of Eden and be with them every day. I will be their God and they will be my people and we will be together. And this is what God promised. And so that was his plan. And then the enemy came in. And the enemy got involved in the fall of man. And now we're separated from God. And now we need a savior to reconcile or basically to get the train back on the tracks, right? So you can hear that. And that's not, that's not untrue. But you hear that and sometimes you think, okay, Jesus was plan B. Like God's up there going, oh man, they messed up. The P, I put it, everything was good and they messed. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? I know, I'll send Jesus. It was not like that. It has always been God's plan to send us a Messiah. Always, always. And the reason we know it is because the Old Testament, by the way, we call it the Old Testament. Jesus just called it the Scriptures because that's all they had. Okay, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Bible. They had the Holy Scriptures. And that's what they learned from. And from from the very beginning, all the way going back to Genesis, Scripture points to Jesus. Every single book of the Old Testament, okay, because now we have the old and the new, but every single book points towards Jesus, either the need for a Savior or the arrival of a Savior or any number of ways that it points to Jesus. And so it's interesting to go back and look at that. And see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament or the scriptural prophecies about him. Even Jesus himself, during the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, he said, I came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Okay, and a lot of times we stop at, I came not to abolish the law. Especially when we're talking about the Pharisees and all the things that we did in the book of Acts. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But he also says in the same sentence, the same breath, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Meaning thousands of years of biblical prophecy pointing towards the need of a Messiah, the need for a Savior for us. Jesus came and he fulfilled that for us. 
That's exciting, church. So yes, the birth of a Savior, the family, tradition, all these things is a great reason to just love the Christmas season. But we need to see Christmas as more than that. We need to see Christmas as the fulfillment by a good, loving Father God who said, I have a plan. I have always been here, and I knew you were going to need this, and here it is. And he's providing that for us. So Christmas, to me, signifies the fulfillment of God's promises to save us from ourselves, in essence, right? So that's where we are. So the question then, if we look at Jesus as a Savior, he himself said he came to fulfill prophecy, and Jesus is the Savior. We need to know that we can trust this Savior, or trust that he is the Savior. How about we take even a step back and say, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one that Scripture has been pointing to? So we know that Scripture has been pointing to a Messiah since the very beginning, and he's in all the books of the Bible. If you trust me and you take that as truth, then he's always been there. How do we know Jesus is the one? How do we know we're not still waiting? Because the Jewish people believe we're still waiting. How do we know? I'm going to show you some cool things about how we know. But the other thing, how can we trust that Jesus is our Savior? How can we trust Jesus as our Savior? So I want you to think about that as we go through this. And I know that there are people in this room tonight, and I'm going to make some time at the end for some testimonies. And what I want you to think about is a time when you trusted in Jesus and he either changed your life or maybe he just changed your day. But trust in Jesus changed what you were going through at the moment. And that's important as I go through this. You'll see how important that is that we see how Jesus can change not only our moment or our day, but our entire lives. So we're going to go into this. Before we go into prophecy itself, I want to ask you, is prophecy biblical? I know there's a lot of argument about that. Is there anybody here who thinks, no, I'm not going to phrase it like that because I'm going to, okay. I'm just going to skip that part because I was going to ask for a show of hands. Does anybody think it is? Anybody think it isn't? But I want to tell you that prophecy is very biblical. From the beginning of time, God has sent his prophets to communicate with his people. Okay, God communicated with his people through the high priest in the temple. And then he also communicated with his people corporately on a, on a national level through prophets. And those prophets were given a word to share with God's people. And so prophecy, the gift of prophecy within us, Paul very neatly delineates what that looks like, and that is alive and active today, the, the individual prophecy. But the corporate prophecy that we're talking about, the prophets in the Bible, that was how God communicated with his people. And so it's important when we see that, that God communicated with his people, but nothing happens without a reason. So there was a reason. Every prophecy that was given in the word was done for a reason. Now you could easily just throw a blanket on the whole thing and say, it was all just to foreshadow Jesus coming. Or it was all just to tell people that without Jesus they were doomed. You could just lump it all into one category. But it's much more than that. Each prophet, each bit of prophecy that they wrote, each book that was written, okay, was written for a reason, 
to a people or a people group for a specific time. And before you say, well, something that applied towards the kingdom of Judah, you know, 1,500 years ago, doesn't really apply to us today. Yes, it does. The reason it's so important to know what the word says about prophecy and to know the prophecy that was given to God's people all the way back then is because those same issues, those same problems that they were going through then, we go through now. Every single day. There's nothing they went through that we don't go through now. It might look different, but it's the same. And we're going to see that. So, prophecy for one, one of the ways that you know what prophecy is, is its divine origin. Okay, scripture itself says prophecy never came about through man's own interpretation, but it was given to them by God. And so when you look at prophecy, especially the the prophets that that are in the word that gave these corporate scriptures for for an entire people group or all of God's people corporately, you know it's divine origin because these things come to pass. And when they come to pass, you see that there is no possible way that somebody could have scripted this. There's no way somebody could have guessed. And it's especially important when you look at prophecy concerning Jesus, that you know that there is no possible way that this just happened. Because what's one of the things that people will say when we pull up Scripture and we say, Jesus fulfilled all this Old Testament prophecy? What's one of, the, one of the arguments against that that people will say? Anybody have one? Okay. How about, how about this? How about Jesus knew Old Testament Scripture, or the Scriptures, right? He knew it. He knew what it said. And he just set out to make it his life's mission to fulfill those things. Okay, what about, what about the Scripture on, on Palm Sunday where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey? Okay, that's one of my favorites. But if Jesus knew that scripture, he could have been sitting there going, okay, it's almost perfect, but I need a donkey. Somebody give me a donkey. That'll fulfill scripture. Okay? There are a couple that could have been like that. I'm not saying they were, but somebody could argue, well, Jesus just knew the scripture and he, and he made things happen. I'm going to show you how that's not even close to possible. Okay? Prophecy was given to us bit by bit to form pieces of a larger puzzle. Okay? If you think of prophecy, each individual prophecy, each individual book as a piece of a puzzle, by themselves, they may not mean much. By themselves, they may not paint much of a picture. But as you put those pieces together and they start to interlink and they start to form a pattern, now you can see how God has always orchestrated this from the very beginning Nothing is a surprise to him. And our need for a savior was certainly not a surprise to him. But we talk about prophecy being from divine origin. How do we know, how do we know that prophecy concerning Jesus is of divine origin? Meaning it's from God and nothing else. How do we know that? Does anybody have any ideas of how we can possibly know or prove that scripture about Jesus is divine. Any ideas? You can look at them and say, okay, those things have come to pass exactly like the word said it has. 
But let me share with you something that's even more, even more scientific. Now, those of you who have taken, that took our bedrock class, you heard this. So I'm going to go over this again, but I think it's important to understand this. This is actually, um, there's actually an author named uh, Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. And in this book, he goes through, Josh McDowell, by the way, started out as an atheist and converted in the process of writing this book because the evidence was overwhelming. I'm going to quote the following little passage from his book, or I'm going to paraphrase it from his book, okay? Now, he contends, and, and depending on who you talk to and how you measure it, there could be far more than this, but he contends that there are at least 300 prophecies concerning Jesus directly in the Old Testament. 300 prophecies. Now, some people count, you know, there's, there's five and 600 and even more than that. Some people say there's less. That's a pretty good number, though. If we call it 300, of that, there are 60 prophecies that are major, that just like point directly. This couldn't possibly be pointing at anybody else. They're major, big things. And then there's about another 270 or so that are, that are um, ramifications, they call them, just kind of uh, sub-things that happen through that. So in any case, we can agree that there's over 300. Let's just call it that. So here's what Josh McDowell quotes in his book. Okay. Some might say, after reading through a list of Old Testament prophecy, that some were fulfilled in the deaths of Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and other notable figures. One could possibly find a prophecy or two fulfilled in the lives of these notable fellows, but not one of them can be credited with, filling, with fulfilling all of them. Only Jesus did so. There are a few that Jesus could have possibly manufactured, but not his birth, Jesus had nothing to do with that. His place of birth, his lineage, being preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist, his crucifixion, all the way down to the amount of the bribe that was given, casting lots, the soldiers casting lots for his clothes, not wanting to tear his garments, that's in the Old Testament. The fact that he was pierced, all these things are prophesied about in the Old Testament that Jesus could not possibly have anything to do with. But going back to this probability, Josh McDowell then further quotes a, a scientist. This guy's name is Peter Stoner, and he wrote a book called Science Speaks. I tried to buy one, and you can get them on Amazon, but they're about $170 a piece for a used one. So if you want one, let me borrow it. Um, <laughs> In his classic book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner calculated the chance of any one man fulfilling even just eight of these over 300 prophecies. Remember, there, we can agree that there's at least 300. He just takes eight to do his mathematical possibilities through, okay? The chance of any one man fulfilling just eight of these over 300 prophecies, even down to the present day today, to be one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's a one with 17 zeros, people. That's a big number. Let me show you some other mathematical probabilities just so that you can kind of wrap your mind around how big this is. Show me that on the screen, guys. Other mathematical probability. Being struck by lightning, one in almost a million. Being struck by lightning twice, one in nine million. What about getting struck by lightning while drowning? 
Somebody calculated this. One in 183 million. Chance of winning the Powerball lottery, one in 292 million. That kind of discouraging about going out and buying a Powerball ticket, right? <laughs> How about this? Being hit by a falling satellite, one in 21 trillion. Being hit by a falling satellite, one in 21 trillion. Now, Jesus fulfilling just eight of these 300 prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power, or they don't even have a word for it, a little more than a quadrillion. I always thought that was a number you made up as a kid. I bet you a quadrillion dollars. It's a real number, but it's not. 10 to the 17th power is even more than that. That's a big chance. But that's hard for us to write to wrap our minds around, right? How do you wrap your mind around a number like that? So Josh McDowell does this even further. Not Josh McDowell, but Peter Stoner. He actually gives us a visual. So I want you to picture what this visual is like, okay? Peter Stoner is actually from Texas. So he picks the state of Texas. He says, take the state of Texas and take one to the 10, one, take 10 to the 17th power Silver dollars. Remember silver dollars? Okay. You take that many silver dollars and you lay them over the face of Texas. Hey, Weston, can I get you to turn the air down just a little bit, a couple degrees? Tend to, I see people fanning themselves, so I, I know it's hot. All right. To help us visually comprehend the staggering number, Stoner proposed that we take that many silver dollars and lay them across the state of Texas. In doing so, we'd find that they would stack up across the state two feet deep two feet deep across the entire state of Texas. But wait, there's more. Now mark one of those silver dollars. Just take one out, put an X on it, drop it back in the state and stir the whole thing up so that it's at random, okay? Then blindfold a volunteer and tell him he can travel as far as he likes across the entire state of Texas, but that at some point he must stop, bend over and pick up that marked silver dollar. That is how difficult it would be for one man to fulfill just eight of these 300 prophecies. That's one in 10 to the 17th power. Church, there is no possible way with all the prophecy about Jesus could be manufactured or somebody could just set out to fulfill them. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. There's a few that, haven't, that are not to have been fulfilled yet. They'll be with his coming but every single one that was to have been fulfilled now has been fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ. Prophecy is from God. Prophecy is divine. It's guided by the very hand of God given to prophets to give to us. Why is it given to us? It's given to us to encourage us, to encourage us that God is in control. God knows that we need a Savior, and He has sent a Savior for us, and that Savior is going to come back. It's meant to be encouraging, not condemning. Even times when you find in Scripture that prophets are condemning, it feels like it's condemning the people, they're doing that to encourage people. Say, if you continue down this road, it's not going to turn out well. Remember the prophets talking to Paul when he was traveling on his missionary journeys? He was warned time and time again that it's not going to turn out well for you. Well, they didn't have an understanding of what well was, but they knew that it wasn't going to look like he wanted it to. 
prophecy has always been around. Prophet Isaiah is one of my favorite, and that's the one that we're going to go in here to tonight. The prophet Isaiah, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, foretold of the birth of a Messiah. Now, Isaiah, a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah was around, and he was writing, again, 700 years before Jesus, uh, give or take. He was, he was in the kingdom of Judah, okay? Israel was a divided kingdom. He had Judah and you had Israel down below. It was divided at that point, and you had prophets that were working in the north in Judah and prophets that were working in the south in Israel. Well, Isaiah happened to be in Judah, and Judah had its own problems going on at the time, and this is what Isaiah was addressing. The kingdom of Judah had actually been surrounded by the Assyrian army at the, at the time that this is being written had been surrounded by the Assyrian army, and the Assyrian army was getting ready to attack. Well, the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Israel came to King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and said, hey, let's form an alliance, the three of our kingdoms, let's form an alliance, and then we can defend ourselves against the Assyrians. Well, King Ahaz said, no, I don't want your help. We can do this ourselves. They couldn't. There's no way they could do it themselves. And why he was stubborn like that and refused help, I don't really know. But he did. He refused help. And so the enemy was literally perched on the doorstep of Judah. Judah was just about to get swallowed up, and their own leader was refusing the help that could save them. So at this time, God gave this message to Isaiah, this message of a coming Savior, the message of the one to come, a message of hope. In a time like this where they saw nothing but the enemy surrounding them. Much like today, right? We may not have the Assyrian army parked on our doorstep, but we've got every other kind of thing coming at us, don't we? And so we need encouragement every much as bit as they did. Every bit as much as they did. And that's what Isaiah comes. So as we read these promises these prophecies. Think about this. Isaiah ultimately ends up, uh, the, second, the king of, of Judah after Ahaz ends up sawing Isaiah in half. That's how Isaiah dies. Right after the king saws Isaiah in half, putting him to death, he has an epiphany and decides, you know what, Isaiah was right. I shouldn't have done that. And he repents and he turns to his ways. But that's just a little side note. Fun fact for you. <laughs> so as I read through these prophecies, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people that Isaiah was writing this to. Okay, He was writing this to a people surrounded, enemy on the doorsteps. Their leaders are refusing help. It's looking bleak. And Isaiah writes these to him. We've got a couple here. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's pretty specific. 700 years earlier. And then the next one. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Their nation, which was torn apart, torn apart and about ready to be ravaged by wolves, had a Messiah who was coming. 
this promise. But my favorite, my favorite one is this. It's Isaiah 9, 6, 7. It's the main one we're going to tear into tonight. And here it is. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Isaiah writes this to a people who are desperate for help. And he promises them this help. Let's go back to verse 6 if we could. Take this apart. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given. This is a promise. He's not saying when, but he's saying hold on. Hold on. It's coming. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That phrase right there about the name. It's not, it's not several names, that's one name. See, back then, that's kind of a poke at the Assyrians, the Egyptians, other kingdoms like that, who would always make these grandiose names for their leaders. Remember, the great and all-powerful, all-knowing, all-peaceful, all-merciful, fill in the blank. Remember seeing that? They quote that in the movies all the time where they quote that. So this right here, this These several names, they're not individual names. They're saying his name will be this in direct opposition to the enemy perched on the doorstep. Saying, wait, our God is going to be much greater than this. And he's coming. Okay, the next one, Wonderful Counselor, where it says Wonderful Counselor. Let's dig into these names here a little bit. Wonderful Counselor is actually, again, kind of a poke at King Ahaz who has declined all of the counsel from the people around him to go ahead and partner with Israel and partner with Syria against this enemy. He has taken all of that counsel and just thrown it out the door in his stubbornness. Wonderful counselor says that he will be wise. He will have godly wisdom, divine wisdom beyond that. Mighty God. This one is important. Now, mighty God, we throw around the phrase mighty God all the time, and it's, and it's good. It's a good honoring name for our God. But there's something I want you to know about this. One of the names for mighty God or for God is Elohim. Okay, you've probably heard that before, Elohim. Elohim is actually used many, many other places in the Bible. It's, used, it's actually used all the way back in Exodus is the first time that that's used. As Elohim. Well, Elohim not only refers to Yahweh, Father God of the Jews, but also to a number of minor gods. Okay, back in Exodus, they refer to, to Pharaoh as Elohim. If you go back to the Hebrew translation, so Elohim can actually mean those who who pretend to be gods or who say that they're gods. Small G God, in other words. This word right here, if you look it up in translations, mighty God, is just El, E-L. And E-L is only used, it's exclusively used in reference to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. It's the only time that's used. It's important to know because people all over the region at that time were calling themselves gods. 
small g gods. This is capital G God. Eternal Father, the next one there, actually has a scripture that goes with it. I'm going to read that. This is, this is um, in Psalm. It's Psalm 68, 5 and 6. It says, this is, this is David writing. And again, this is hundreds of years earlier. David writes about this. It will be a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, a God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. Referencing that eternal father part. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. David is prophesying that there will be a father figure coming. Okay, A father to people who don't have a father. Prince of Peace, the next one. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Actually, in that southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, remember it was divided kingdom, um, there was another prophet named Micah. And Micah, at the same time, that Isaiah is writing in Judah, Micah is writing down in Israel. And Micah writes this in Micah 4.3, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will, be, then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Prince of Peace. This is something that was a radical idea because their entire livelihood was either in battle, preparing for a battle, or recovering from a battle. That was their entire life. And to see this, an end to war, and we're still waiting for that, right? But this is what he's talking about here. Verse 7, verse 7, next one here. There will be no end to the increase of his government. He's talking about, this is actually referencing back 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. It's a little bit long, but listen to this. This is God making a covenant with David. It says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish this kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, who I removed before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. This is David. This is God giving that word to David all those years ago. And then the last part, the zeal of the Lord. Zeal there translates to all-absorbing jealousy. It's not just he's excited. It is an all-absorbing jealousy to accomplish this. It references Isaiah a little bit later, Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. This is exactly what the people of Judah needed to hear. They needed to hear that this was coming for them. Hold on. Things may look bad now. You may think you're going through some things, but hold on. I have a promise. And so this is what, this is what all of prophecy points to. All of biblical prophecy, no matter where you find it, points to the fact that God knew that we were going to need a Savior. He prepared this in advance for us, and he promised us 
over the years, he promises us time and time again that he can and will send Jesus Christ for us. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Christmas knowing that it's the fulfillment of one of God's biggest promises to us. Amen? Hey, I want to take a minute, before I conclude the message, I want to take a minute and revisit that testimony that I was talking about earlier. Is there anyone here who would like to start us off? Some way in which trusting in God has delivered you through something that you didn't think you could get through. Trusting in God has changed your life or maybe your day. Over here. My name is Rachel. Um, So about four years ago, I was dating a guy that was not a Christian and he actually raped me. And then about two months later, my closest guy friend did the same thing. And about a year after that, I was still a complete mess. I was taking Adderall for my ADD, but I was also taking Xanax because I had panic attacks constantly. I could not go to the movie theater just because being around all that people would cause me to have a panic attack. And um, about a year after all that happened, I came here to the young adults group in the other room over here. And um, Jen was the leader there, and I just was telling her and the other two girls my story because we broke up to boys and girls. And um, I was telling them my story, and I was just shaking because I had so much anxiety. And I would never have gotten up in front of anyone and said my story then, by the way. Um, But here I am two years later, and I've overcome my anxiety. I'm no longer medicated for anxiety, panic attacks, Adderall, anything. Completely prescription drug-free. That's awesome. Um, I've met this amazing man, Brian. We're engaged, so Mm. that's a huge blessing. (laughs) But I've come so far, like I have self-worth, I have confidence, and I have happiness and joy that I thought I'd never have again. Thank you, Rachel. Anyone else? Back here. Doug? This is not about me. It's about my wife. This happened 30 30 some odd years ago. I was in California working on the context of having my family move out there with me. And I got involved in drugs. I was doing four grams of cocaine a day. I called my wife, I met another woman out there, and I told her, I ain't coming home, I want out. She was living with my mom, who's up in heaven now. And she wept before the Lord with my mom, and the Lord came to her and said, he'll be home in three days. I'm in California. I still don't know how I got on that bus, and they picked me up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, three days later, and Mm. the Lord blessed me with saving my life. Mm. That's awesome. Thank you. you. Anyone else? We have time for one more. Don't go home and then wish, oh, I should have. Over here. My name is Nancy, and um, wow, we 
Well, I'll say when I was pregnant, I was a high-risk pregnancy. And there's been three times we all lost our son. Three times. But God has kept them alive all that time. He has made me through the surgeries. And, you know, he's our miracle child because, you know, we always lost a few times. But you wouldn't know that because he's such a happy child. You wouldn't know that. But God has proven to us that he's there for us during the hard times of our lives because going through the pregnancy at high risk and I was losing our son, that was hard. But he kept that son alive. You know, he has sending it through. And... No, God has always been there for us through all our lives. Think, you know, through our worst times, our hardest times. But the hardest times was with our son. And, you know, he's alive now because, you know, God kept him alive. That's good. That's good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I love doing that. I wish, actually wish that we could sit and do that all night long. It's so encouraging to hear what God has done in people's lives because the enemy wants to keep us quiet. The enemy wants to keep us in a place where we don't share those things with one another. And so we're left to walk around all day going, is anything happening? Is God moving? Is God doing anything? I threw all these prayers out, but is he answering anybody's prayers? I don't know. Meanwhile, the person sitting next to you has a testimony that can be life-giving to you. Never be afraid, church, to share your testimony because that thing you say is something that might give somebody else hope when they're coming through. It's like when we go back to Isaiah, the things that he said, those were meant to give hope to a nation, a nation surrounded. But the word of God is always about hope. It points to a Messiah, and it points to a Messiah not just so that someday we can be in heaven, so that we can have hope. We can have an expectation that our God is good and our God reigns supreme. Worship team, you guys can go ahead. Emily, you can go ahead and come up. Our God is good. And all that we need to do is trust in him. And it's so easy to lose that trust when we don't see evidence of him working in our lives. Church, the fact that you're here and you're breathing means that God is working in your life. You can trust me on that. But our testimony, our testimony is the one of the ways in the word that it says we overcome. In the end, we overcome by the power of our testimony. And it's not that those words are going to go out and blast the enemy. It's that those words encourage other believers to do the same thing. And we come together and we say the enemy will not have his way with us. No matter how things look, we can watch. All you got to do is read the news to see the enemy on our doorstep, right? The very same enemy that Judah was afraid of then. We have that very same enemy now in many different forms, perched on our doorstep. Do we have reason to fear? No. There is no reason to fear an enemy on our doorstep because our God is good and our God has always been good. And our God knew from the beginning of time that we were going to face these things and he made a way for us. And all we have to do is hold on to that. Hold on to that faith and that hope that we have in Jesus Christ and share that faith and hope with others so that they can have that same peace. You go to the mall, especially this time of year, and you see people running around with this look on their face like, oh my gosh, they're overwhelmed. 
That's not peace. That's not from the Lord. If you find yourself in that place, remember, no matter what happens, my God is good. And my God made a way all those years ago, all that time ago. And so when you wake up on Christmas morning and you're celebrating, you're not celebrating the fact that you got the perfect present. You're celebrating the fact that our God is and has always been good and faithful. And that day we celebrate his faithfulness in the person of Jesus Christ come to us. Amen? So church, I'm going to pray over you and then release you into communion. Communion this time of year should take a special significance, especially in light of a message like this. It should be excitement, excitement about what God has already done and what he's going to continue to do in us. So you can take communion yourself at the crosses with the juice or Gabe and I will serve you up front here with the wine. But let's do this with joy. Not just like, hey, this is the time when we do communion, but let's have joy in our hearts that no matter what enemy is perched on our doorstep, real or imagined, they've got nothing against what our God has already done for us. And our God is and will always be faithful to us. And if you're in that place where you just say, you know what, I, I'm not even sure I know Jesus. You have that opportunity every single day to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you feel that pull, maybe you feel that pull for the very first time. We have our prayer team in the back, some newly commissioned, some seasoned. Go back and see them and they will pray with you. And they will seal that thing in your heart. Because sometimes we just need somebody to agree with us that God is good and stand against that voice in our head that says, yeah, but the enemy's on the doorstep and he's knocking. Our God is good. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this season of anticipation of a promise fulfilled. It's not gifts under the tree. It's not lights. It's not a parade. It's not a dinner where we're going to eat too much. Lord, we get to wake up that morning and know and celebrate the fact that you are good and every promise you have ever made to your people, you fulfill in Jesus Christ. And we can take that comfort with us everywhere we go. That is a gift that doesn't need batteries and it doesn't wear out. It's not the wrong color or the wrong size. That is a gift that we can wear like armor everywhere that we are. So, Father, we just thank you for what you have done. We thank you for excitement and anticipation. We thank you for your love and your mercy. And we thank you for Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Tore the night apart and ripped the silent skies and now your glory breaking through the dark and here our worlds collide divinity and man can find this great design drawn out for me Man, you. 
be there.